It's an honor to be back with you again. Um, always appreciate the invitation to come and speak. It is the first Sunday evening of the month. That means I get to be here, so uh, that'll be that way for the rest of the, the year. Uh, and uh, when I was asked to speak, I was told some different things that would be good to speak on, some things that are just generally helpful, good first principles type lessons. So tonight, we're going to talk about some things that most of us have heard well, for me, my entire life in a lot, lot of ways. But just because you've heard something before doesn't necessarily mean I can just check out and not listen because these are things that will be helpful when answering objections in evangelism. When we think about talking to people, our neighbors, our friends, about the gospel and the most fundamental of all topics of how do you become a Christian? How do you become saved? Uh, you will get a number of different answers to that question. If you Google the, just the word um, sinner's prayer, the first website that comes up is this, where you see salvation prayer. You can become part of the family of God. You scroll down just a little bit, and it says accepting Jesus Christ is very simple. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever means you. And then right below that, it says, say with, with your mouth. Verse 9 and verse 10 tell us that if we say with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And then... It says it's just that easy, verse 9 and 10, tell how easy it is to receive salvation or eternal life with God. And then it tells you to say aloud this prayer right now. The prayer saying, please, I accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. I accept my salvation from sin right now. I am now saved. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Thank you, Father God, for forgiving me, saving me and giving me eternal life with you. Amen. And then, right after that, you scroll down a little bit farther. It says, if you just prayed this prayer for the first time, I welcome you to the family of God. We'd love to pray for you and provide you with resources to help you in your walk with God. And then there's a link to follow you, follow for them to send you helpful information. When you see Romans chapter 10, verse 13, when it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved... There's more to it than just that. That phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, has rich history, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. To really understand what it means to call on the name of the Lord takes a little more digging than uh, it's just that. Taking a verse out of context, throwing it on a website, there's more to it. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, he's quoting directly from Joel chapter 2. But that's not the only place in the Old Testament where this phrase is found. And what all is included with calling on the name of the Lord. So tonight, what I want to do is, is looking, where do you start when someone brings up this topic when you're studying with them? First, Jesus rejects the idea of salvation from just saying the word Lord. Just calling him Lord. It's not a magic incantation or a spell that you can say, and all of a sudden, poof, you get the answer to the question that you're asking for. 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There's more to it than just saying, Lord, Lord. There's also an aspect built into it of the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, why are you calling me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? You bring up that prayer again that was on that one website, and you notice that this prayer doesn't have any scripture citations to it. It's because it's not in the New Testament anywhere. This is something that was written. In a lot of ways, there are scriptural ideas in it as a conglomeration, but you can't read anyone in scripture who says a prayer anything remotely like this, and receive salvation. Uh, and no one in the, in the Bible is saved in this way where, uh, in, that, that we see in the New Testament era. So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? So this evening, what we're going to talk about is different things that includes, built in to, based upon other texts that still use this phrase. It includes obedience. It includes asking for help. It includes worship and is character defining. Now, when we say that it is what was really meant, I'll go ahead and tell you the conclusion of the lesson, and then you guys can just check out if you want to, I guess. But really, the idea of this lesson is that whoever calls on the name of the Lord isn't something that you do one time. It becomes a description of who you are. You become someone who calls on the name of the Lord every day of your life, and it becomes who you are. It's that type of person. It's whoever is the type of person who calls on the name of the Lord. It's that person who is saved. And then, as soon as you bring up that question and you come to those conclusions, I almost guarantee you the next question will be, well, what about the thief on the cross? So... Built into this lesson, I want to go ahead and address that as well. And I think that will be helpful to you as you talk to your family and friends through these ideas. So first, let's talk about how this includes obedience. Uh, for those who, who there are outlines available, and the, out, the words the, that are blanks should be underlined on the screen. I, I have doubled and triple checked them, but I always seem to make a mistake. Uh, but if you, for some reason, miss a blank, find me and I'll, I'll help you fill it in later. So calling on the name of the Lord always includes obedience. And, and we don't have to go any further than the text where we've already started. With Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, and here he quotes Joel chapter 2, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. Here is where he quotes Joel chapter 2. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes 
from what is heard. What is heard comes through the message about Christ. I'm using the CSB version, if that is different than, than the version you grew up uh, or you're accustomed to. Uh, here, built into this, what is included with the whoever calls on the name of the Lord will immediately after verse 13 comes verse 14. And, and you built in 14, you see that this includes hearing. Automatically included in the gospel and calling on the name of the Lord. You can't call on the name of the Lord if you don't know who the Lord is. You need to hear the message that, about Christ. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the message about Christ. And how can they hear unless a preacher is sent? Because they need to hear the gospel. But if you also notice in the same context how important faith and belief is. If you get someone to repeat a, a, a prayer or repeat a magic phrase, or even if you grab them and you dunk them underwater, but they don't have belief with it, you're treating it like it's a magic incantation, like it's some secret recipe. But it's more than that. You have to include believing. How can they call on him who they've not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? And then later in verse 16, not all obey the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But also in the same context is the idea of obeying as well. Verse 16, but not all has obeyed the gospel. People can hear the gospel. They can even start to believe the gospel. But unless they obey the gospel, they cannot call on the name of the Lord as this passage described. This isn't the only place in the New Testament that, where the phrase calling on the name of the Lord is. So a good follow-up question, if you're discussing with your friends, is when did Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul, when did he call on the name of the Lord? Well, when he is on the road to Damascus, after he's just been persecuting Christians in Jerusalem, he's got letters from, from the leaders, the Jewish leaders, to go to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. But while he is on the road to Damascus, he is... Uh, a, a, suddenly a flash from heaven was all around him and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And right after that, do you know what he does? He says, who are you, Lord? There he uses the word Lord, but he also says, who are you? He doesn't know who he's talking to or who he is believing in all of a sudden. Jesus responds, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Well, we know what happens after that. That he goes, by, is led by the hand into Damascus, where he prays three days and three nights without eating. I wonder what he prayed during those three days. Do you think it's something similar to, please, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior? I would say it's something fairly similar to that. And when you ask someone, one of your friends, someone that you care about, when did Saul become saved? Or when did Saul call in the name of the Lord? And they'll say it was either on the road to Damascus when he sees Jesus. That seems like a pretty big event. Or perhaps when he prayed for three days 
and not eating for three days. But then Ananias comes to him later in verse 16, and Ananias says, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, washing away, wash away your sins, calling on his name. What you see here is that the act of being baptized, washing away your sins, is automatically built into this idea of calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of Jesus himself, this is when Saul calls on the name of the Lord. You also notice here that Saul still had all of his sins accounted to him. That this is the opportunity that Saul had to have his sins washed away. This is a great place to just ask the question, when was Saul saved? When did Saul call on the name of the Lord? It wasn't like that website said, it's just the simple. There were more steps to it, at least for Saul. And so the context of calling on the name of the Lord in Romans 10, verse 9 and, 7, 9 and 17, says that it's more. But also Saul's baptism was part of calling on the name of the Lord. Now, when the very first gospel sermon, you might say, well, that's just Saul. But what about the rest of us? In the very first gospel sermon, Peter also quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. He starts there because of an accusation that is made. Peter stands up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews, all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain to you and pay attention to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only nine in the morning. On contrary, it is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So he actually starts quoting Joel a little bit earlier, just before the calling on the name of the Lord. He starts earlier than that. He says, and it was in the last days, God said, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see your visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days. Both men and women will prophesy. I will display signs, display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why did he start there? Well, the accusation was, these people are drunk. We don't need to listen to them. But instead, Peter says, no, they're not drunk. This is what Joel was talking about. And he uses that as an introduction to the first sermon. He ends his quotation with, whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. And he starts at that point and explains who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Lord who you crucified. And if you notice in verse 36, at, at the end of that sermon, that sermon is so masterfully put together, you, when you get to the end of it, there is no doubt who the Lord is. And, and it's Jesus. And his conclusion of his sermon, his come as you stand and sing type last remark was, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see how he started his sermon with saying, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and this Jesus who you crucified is Lord. That is the name you need to call on in order to be saved. And immediately after that, in verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? In other words, 
How do we call on the name of the Lord Jesus? You see the connections there? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is Lord, and they said, how do we do that? How does Peter respond? He doesn't say, say this prayer. He doesn't say, do. There's nothing you can do. God has already done it, and if he's chosen you, he's chosen you. Instead, what Peter says is repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You notice how that, that he, his last phrase there, this promise is for you, for your children, and it is many as the Lord God will call. Now, if you're familiar with Joel chapter 2, how he began that sermon, if you turn over to Joel chapter 2, do you know how Joel chapter 2 ends? It says, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord has promised. Among the survivors, the Lord calls. He starts with Joel 2, ends with a reference to Joel 2, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, P Peter answers. It means to be someone who follows God and to do what he says. And what he says to do is to repent and be baptized. So it includes obedience. But there's more to it than that. There's more to calling on the name of the Lord. It also includes asking for help. If you have your, your Bible with you, I'd like to turn to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says, I love the Lord because he has, has heard my appeal for mercy, because he has turned his ear to me. I will call out to him as long as I live. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torments of Sheol overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate. The Lord guards the inexperienced. I was helpless and he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, rescued me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I said I am severely oppressed. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. a liar. How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The death of the faithful is valuable in the Lord's sight. Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house within you, Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Three different times in that one psalm, he says, call on the name of the Lord. Once was in a cry for help, and then the other two times were in praise and thanksgiving. He calls on the name of the Lord when he's in trouble, and then when worshiping for the rest of his life. We'll note more about that later. But it includes 
calling out for help. The word in, in Greek, in the New Testament, that, it, that is often used to call on is this word that means to invoke. Have you ever been to a real fancy dinner or a graduation or something and they have someone lead the invocation? That's what this is. It's a, a prayer to call on God, to invoke Him. Uh, it's an appeal to the authority of a higher power for aid or assistance. So to call on the name of the Lord does mean to ask Him for something you are unable to provide for yourself. We also call that grace. Grace is something that we are unable to do for ourselves that God empowers us to do. In, in the same way that word is used in Acts chapter 25 when when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, what he is doing is he is invoking the name of Caesar, a higher power. And, and in Stephen, when he prays to Jesus in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, when he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he is invoking the name of the Lord for salvation from the, the dangers that he is facing. So it includes asking for help. But it includes worship. And here we're going to go way back to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 13, when Abram called on the name of the Lord wherever he set up his tent. That's where he was going to call on the name of the Lord. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to this place between Bethel and Ai, where he set his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram, Abram called on the name of the Lord there. And then verse 18, uh, you have it again. Abram moved his tent, went to live near the Oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. And not only just Abram, but he also taught his son Isaac to do the same. In chapter 26, verse 24 and 25, the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. Do you see that this is something that was just part of Abraham's character and Isaac's character? Wherever he moved, that's where he would call on the name of the Lord. It was part of their worship. In, in, in similar ways, it includes all parts of worship for us as well. You have in Matthew chapter 14 that his apostles, when they get out of the boat, the wind ceased, and then those in the boat worshiped Jesus and said, truly you are the Son of God. They, they give him that title, Son of God, and, and invoke that name. First Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. And in Ephesians 5 verse 19, when we sing songs, when we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music, with your heart to the Lord. Part of our worship is invoking God. And, and the song that we sang just now, I will call upon the Lord, is included in this. But really the point is that this is character defining. This becomes who we are. And it's not just, I pray a prayer one time, or I'm just baptized one time. It's about who I am as a person. And it begins very early in the Bible. It begins in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, is a bloody chapter. It is a chapter full of evil people doing evil things. It starts with Cain slaying his brother Abel. 
And then it goes on down to inverse, and it sees, you see descendants of, of Cain as you keep going down through there until you get to Lamech in, in verse 23 and 24. And you just see how far away the people were from God. Lamech had two wives, uh, Ada and Zillah, and he said to his wives, Hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. You just see how far away they had become from people who worshiped the Lord. But in verse 26, after Seth is born, it said, A son was also born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. There was a, a shift with Enosh. There was a shift at that time where people went back to calling on the name of Yahweh, that he was their God. It, it becomes who they are, that calling on the name of the Lord is more than just a one-time appeal. And I want you to notice all the times in the New Testament where it talks about who, Christians who present tense call on the name of the Lord. It's not just something they did once back a while ago. It describes who they are right now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, interesting that this is uh, you know, written to the church in Corinth that had so many problems. He writes to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. It is a characteristic automatically built in to someone who is a follower of God, a follower of Jesus. That is who you are, is someone who calls on the name of the Lord. In, in Acts chapter 9, in the same context of Saul of, of Tarsus go, going to Damascus, and when he gets to Damascus, God approaches Ananias, in that same context, Ananias answers, says, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. These people in Jerusalem, they are actively right now, present tense, calling on the name of the Lord. It's not just something that happens once. In, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, it's something that happens continuously that all Christians call on God from a pure heart. Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So what we see here, it begins early in Jesus, uh, in Genesis. Calling on the name of the Lord is more than just a one-time appeal, and it really encompasses all that we do. It is like it says in Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, the song that we sang, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It becomes who you are. It defines your character. So when you get through, I'm sure you wouldn't give that long 30, 40 minute discussion. 
with your friends, but I just want you to see how pervasive this idea is throughout all of Scripture. And just to say, it's just that simple. Well, there's more to it than that. And they come back with a question. Well, what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross, all he does is say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that very similar to calling on the name of the Lord? And I would say, yeah, it is. It is very similar to calling on the name of the Lord. So what about the thief on the cross? Well, there's some some good ways to answer that. First answer, Jesus is God and he can do what he wants. It's really that simple. We know that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. He says so himself in Matthew chapter 9, and if he wants to forgive someone in a special way, he can do that. Now, who am I? Little, tiny, pitiful Seth MacDonald to say, but God, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross. Does anybody here want to be saved like the thief on the cross was saved? No, no thank you. When he says to me, repent and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, That's a lot more appealing to me than the way the thief on the cross was. So first, Jesus is God. He can do what he wants. Full stop. The question is, is what has he asked me to do? So they like Romans chapter 10, verses 9, 10, and verse 13. In fact, that was what was written here on that website. That's actually my favorite passage to go to, to answer the what about the thief on the cross. So when they say, what about the thief on the cross? The first thing that I ask, the, the thing that I ask is, uh, to be saved today, do you have to believe that God raised Jesus' physical body from the dead? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I have Only one time heard someone say, no, you don't actually have to believe that God raised Jesus' physical body from the dead. And that was a guy that says, well, Muslims can be saved and and everyone else who believes in people other than Jesus, that more people will be going to heaven than just Christians. Other than that guy, I've never heard someone to say that today you can be saved without believing that Jesus' physical body was raised from the dead three days later after he hung on a cross. My next question is, did the thief on the cross believe that Jesus' body was raised from the dead? And the answer is no, because it hadn't happened yet. So what you're saying is that today, here's a rule that applies to me. If I want to be saved, I have to believe that God raised Jesus' body from the dead. But the thief on the cross over here did not believe Jesus' body was raised from the dead we got, we got a conflict here. So is it possible that there are rules that apply to me today that didn't apply to him? The answer is a very clear yes from the same context of the same passage that they like to use so much. Another passage that I like to go to is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, where it talks about how baptism is the picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the dead. So we too die to sins. We're buried in water and we come up to walk in newness of life. And you have to understand that that's what you're doing. You are replicating the gospel. 
To obey the gospel, you have to replicate the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, so you too have to die, be buried, and be raised. Could the thief on the cross understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Some people say, well, maybe, who knows? He might have been baptized under John's baptism. Maybe. But we also know from Acts chapter 19, the people that didn't even know, hadn't heard about Jesus, that had only been baptized under John's baptism, they needed to be baptized again because they needed to understand that being baptized into Jesus is to replicate the gospel, to be that Jesus died, was buried, and raised, so we too must die, be buried, and be raised. And then, if you even grant them all, everything else, just go ahead, take it all. What do you do with the, all of the passages that says that baptism saves you? You've got to explain every single one of them away. And, and almost invariably, you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and you turn the Bible around there and say, here, read this. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but they read it and go, huh, what version is this? Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I've experienced that many times. Standing on, on a, on a uh, we, we would set up a booth in Florida when I was preaching in Florida on the third Friday night of every month. And invariably, that was the response. What version is this? Pick a version. It's in all of them. Baptism now saves you. That is what God has asked you to do. So let's wrap up. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is more about who you are as a person more than just a one-time thing that you do. It's more than just saying a prayer. It's less about the words that you use and more about your willingness to submit submit and to obey. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. I appreciate your attention this evening. That's all I've got. I hope, I hope this is helpful. And, and for, for so many of us in this room, again, these are things that we've We've heard many times over, but there may be perhaps someone here who is, this might be new territory. And if that is the case, we'd love to talk to you uh, and have a sit-down Bible study. Perhaps you have more questions about this topic. I would love to talk to you. I got, I got time today and tomorrow. I would love that opportunity as well as any of the elders here if you have more questions on those lines. But if, if you are convicted and you know, hey, the way, when I was baptized, I didn't do it because I was replicating the gospel. It was because someone just told me to say a prayer, then I was saved, and then scheduled a baptism month, weeks or months later, then perhaps you need to make some, a decision in your life that I need to be baptized again, just like those people in Acts chapter 19 were those people who were only baptized under the baptism of John because they didn't know and understand what they were doing is replicating the gospel. There is a need here for anyone to obey the gospel tonight. We ask you to come to the front as together we stand and as we sing.